Hello, welcome back to the 831 Podcast, episode 44. Well, we're coming thick and fast now, trying to keep you guys updated. I've, got, I've been lucky enough to have a few guests backed up, so we've got another one coming out straight away for you. Um, I hope you all enjoyed Greg's one, absolutely brilliant podcast. If you haven't listened, go back and listen to that. It is very MMA and jiu-jitsu heavy, but Greg's really cool and it's a really fun podcast. So please go and have a listen to that. I can't reiterate enough, guys. All I want from you guys is, A, keep listening for the guests that we have on, but please like, please share. Uh, subscribe if you want. Subscri- subscribing, that's you know, if you want to subscribe, brilliant. But if you could please share, share it on your story, share it on your um, Facebook page, etc. That'd be fantastic if you could. The more, the, the wider that this spreads, the more guests that I can get on and it can be more varied. So sharing this would be fantastic. Also, yeah, any ideas for guests that you think, I'll also take them as well. So don't hesitate to get in touch. As always, shout outs to... Trojan Fitness and Trojan Nutrition Bristol, long-term sponsors and friends of mine. So they'll forever be a sponsor of the podcast. Uh, big shout out to, as always, Sweatbox Gym, A3 Academy, Pedro Bassa BJJ. I've trained with these guys all of my life, all of my career. I continue to train and teach with them. So they will obviously always get a mention as well. Okay, so today's podcast, I am joined by Dr. Matt Wilkes. Um... Matt's a great guy. He's a well a doctor, as you as you probably would have guessed by his title. Um, yeah, he's done some amazing research within the world of falconry. Uh, sorry, he hasn't done anything in falconry within the world of paragliding. He's done some awesome research. Uh, so it's really interesting to sit and listen to any of the research or, and stuff that he wants to talk about there. And I find it really interesting listening to him. However, what he also brought to the podcast is Matt was super curious about MMA and base jumping and all these other things. So him and I have a really good conversation. It's not just about paragliding and it's not just about paragliding anyway. His, the research that he does has been superb. It's going to, I think anyone's going to find this interesting. Plus, he's super funny. He's really engaging. So I do think you'll really enjoy this one. So give this one a try, please. This is episode 43, Dr. Matt Wilkes. And I will catch up with you again as soon as possible because I'm sure we'll have another one of these coming ASAP. Until then, thank you very much. Oh, Matt. Dr. Matt, thank you very much for joining me, buddy. Great to be on. Thanks for having me, Wes. Oh, my pleasure. We've uh, we've been speaking about doing this for a, for a little while now, and it's good to finally get it done. I understand that like, people say that I'm busy with the things that I do, but you you take it to a different level to me because you're busy, but with an air of actually doing something productive and being busy. <laughs> I think that's in the eye of the beholder. Like, I'm not sure my <laughs> mum would agree with that. She calls it my career. Just like this, rather is. <laughs> what um, what are you currently up to at the moment, mate? Because I know you. Last I heard, you were you were you'd become kind of kind of active in being a doctor again because of the COVID stuff and that. Are you still very much in that? Are you having a little bit of a a break from that and getting back to the things that you were focusing on? No, well, fortunately, they don't need me that much anymore, which is great. Like um, you're right. When I've, for about the last four years, I've been doing other bits and bobs. Um, 
and then when COVID hit, I went uh, back to intensive care in Edinburgh and uh, to my home unit, which was great because all the people who used to be my junior docs were now my boss. So I could relentlessly troll them <laughs> for the entire time that I was there, which was class. Um, and I did uh, a few months full time there. Um, and then over the summer, kind of stepped back once everything had sorted itself out into some reasonable order. And then this time round, kind of the second wave, like actually Edinburgh and Scotland in general has been in reasonably good nick. So um, thanks to probably some slightly stricter rules and, and a bit of, sort of demographics, we've kind of been fine. So um, the Edinburgh ICU's not needed me. And I've been actually, we just moved up to Inverness because my wife has got a job up in Inverness. So oh, I've been nice. in the Highlands enjoying the hills, which has been incredible. Awesome. I guess that's a part of it comes from not having a buffoon running your country. That will obviously that'll come into it massively. Um, so uh, the inside, not knowledge, but what's the inside view been like for you COVID wise when it was when you were sort of in the thick of it? Because we hear all this we hear all the stuff and you can listen to mainstream media or you can listen to the, the conspiracy theorist people in, but what's it from a guy who's been on the inside? How's it, how's it been mate through the thick of everything? Do you know, like, um, I consider, I consider myself lucky on a number of levels, but actually being able to work in intensive care during the pandemic was a good experience. If I can say that in a sense that you just saw exactly how bad it could be no worse, no better. So actually, you weren't worrying about what was being said in the media when it was being overhyped, nor did you have to kind of pay attention to the conspiracy stuff because you knew it was a real thing too. And so it was actually a real privilege to to just ha- kind of have it calibrated. It's like, okay, this is what it is. It's not what it is in my imagination or anything else. And so for, like, for people like, you know, my mum and dad who didn't have access to that I think it was very stressful what they were seeing on the news whereas at least at least we saw it as it was if you see what I mean yeah yeah I I certainly do but I mean it it must be um I've been known to be quite conspiratorial and buy into some things but there's obviously other things that just blow my mind like you hear it and I'm like like microchips and implants and all like some things I'm just like come on you're doing none of you're doing people like me no good at all because i'm gonna get lumped in with you idiots do you know what i mean and uh but for... oh man my microchip's amazing honestly i had my jag <laughs> since since then like it links to strava like bill gates <laughs> knows where i am i've been like buying loads of stuff on amazon i don't know what it is but i'm sure i need it it's in class <laughs> you wait till you I've get turned off mate you'll get turned off after this podcast you won't be allowed to associate with people like me <laughs> mate this has been turning me on this has been class <laughs> <laughs> i just uh i like it's for, for the work that like people like yourself are doing or have done, you know, and even I bet I, I can pretty much guarantee what you would say is what you've done is nothing compared to the people who are full time, you know, and it's I think it, what it's done is opened a lot of people's eyes maybe to the work that does go on and just how underfunded and underappreciated things have been for such a long time, possibly. Well, I think the bit that I really hope people remember is like the you know, as an intensive care doctor, we're in a position of some privilege. We had access to lots of PPE, good team spirit, nice to be at work, lots of facilities. I think the people who really had it hard are people like care home workers. Mm-hmm. And what I really hope is that <laughs> the people who, like the government is now calling key workers, that we remember that they are key workers and that when this 
pandemic has gone, they they don't go back to underpaid, underappreciated workers. You know, delivery drivers, supermarket workers, care home people. Like, I think, I sadly I worry that our collective memory is such that they'll immediately <laughs> going back to being low skilled, underpaid, ignored workers, which is what yeah. they were treated as before, as opposed to the like the absolute cogs of our society. Yeah, it's uh. For- from someone, my mum spent her last years in um, in a care home. So I've been, I've always been very mindful and appreciative of of what care workers go through, what they do, the efforts they make. But it is, or it has seemed to be, very much until recently, a very underappreciated role. If you're a doctor and you've got the word doctor in front of your name, as soon as you go to a dinner party, you're a doctor, and people like you know, people are appreciative that, or they have some sort of respect, you have like an, an air of authority. When you say you're a care worker, it doesn't come with any of that, and it should come with all the same. All the same um, benefits is the wrong word. Like the appreciation is any other role because. It's roles that 95% of us couldn't do. I mean, I'm a man who's traveled the world fighting other men in a cage. And I know for a fact that any man or woman on this planet could do what I do. How successfully? It's irrespective, but they could do what I do. Not everyone can do that care thing, you know. And so it is, it's nice that someone like yourself says that because hopefully the people listening and the, the people out there will continue to appreciate what we are what we've learned to appreciate very much now i hope so and the bit i'm cynical about is the you know like the clap for the nhs and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. like i i'd much rather that nurses got a pay rise than yeah. actually like you know it's um that's the bit that i am cynical about is the kind of government thing of like oh the heroes we're clapping for them brilliant heroes don't need pay or a ppe or a decent career progression you know that sort of stuff so yeah i hope if there are any changes for the positive it's that that people who work in care homes are appreciated that delivery drivers are supermarket workers all these people who are essential to our quality of life yeah and it can it can be the finger can be pointed at the uh government as much as possible and obviously the buck does lie with them a little bit but at the same time we as a nation need to support those people and we need to show that appreciation that's the only way that government or anyone else is going to stand up and say shit we we are accountable because everyone wants them so everyone needs to to come together and say claps weren't enough let's continue this and let's support everyone who who did that work now you know it we it's a time when i think we we can appreciate others but also we can maybe appreciate just how selfish we've all kind of been myself and everyone else included you know part of the problem though is that like we're always we are so good at forgetting it's one of the things that kind of helps us as a species and I I did a little bit of work a few years ago in Somalia and I was there and I saw you know really pretty rough stuff and Mm -hmm. I come back to to Scotland I'm like I'm so grateful for everything you know like I'm you know all you need in life is a roof over your head and a vegetable patch and I have so much more isn't that amazing and then six hours of being there I'm like a parking ticket <laughs> gone, gone is my like mother Teresa like serenity <laughs> back that those first world issues hit you really quickly don't they? it's it's they one of those we just recalibrate we just recalibrate to like this is you know this is what our lives are and so uh, yeah sadly because I'm sure we will forget you're only like for the most part you're only existing in your own existence right you know you can't and then 
part of that reality becomes Gemma Collins being a dickhead on TV, or it becomes some other, like, put any name out there being shoot that becomes your reality more so than the fact that half of the the half of the world half of the planet is war torn in poverty starving and you're like oh god i feel really bad i'm really going to do something oh but i don't want to miss i'm a celebrity in a minute yeah 100 percent. but like i say it's kind of our strength of humans it's how we manage to move on from you know world wars spanish flu all that stuff it's how we can psychologically cope as a society but it does mean that people get forgotten very very quickly yeah yeah and but i mean that i guess it's also the evolution of science and stuff is is gone very much along those ways because you put these pandemics and stuff behind you because you're focusing on the next one that might come in the future and it's like that gets pushed to one side you could and i guess that's that's our evolution and our development as a species has come from that ability to turn your back on things but i think that's maybe and you might be able to speak truer to maybe that's a uh a, a primal thing within us that we need to forget the weak and the dying because we have to survive as a, as a species if we go back a, a few thousand years which is no time at all you know we'd have left people dying in a bush because we've got to crack on there's animals coming to kill us yeah i don't know about that one like i think there's a whole load of study about that isn't there it's like is altruism a real thing like are we yeah. do we genuinely do stuff to care for people because that's what matters to us or because subconsciously it's helping us um yeah i don't know way out with my <laughs> tiny little sliver of expertise <laughs> no we can't we can't go down the nature and nurture route or anything <laughs> that's not where we're gonna that's not where this i'm certainly have no no rights talking about altruism or um nature and nurture i'm very much let's stick to the shit i can talk about <laughs> um Absolutely. So, mate, you touched about your um the fact that you'd worked in somalia and stuff let's give a little bit of a background about because lots of the people who are going to listen will be paraglider pilots and they will know your name and they'll know lots of the stuff that you've worked within. And then lots of the people are maybe MMA fighters or falconers or, and they might've done a quick little bit of research on This might've just been the next podcast that popped up. So who are you? How did your medical background start and what have you done with it? Yeah, with pleasure. And that's one of the things I love about this podcast was, cause I've been like, um, I've been sessioning it quite a lot when I've been running and I love like the, just the diversity of people you have on it is amazing. Like Thank MMA you. is something I would never look at. Like falconry is something that's very cool, actually, but I would not really kind of really dwell on. So, um, yeah, it's been brilliant. And then like listening to, you know, people like Tim Howells and Jock, it's been class. So I'm very honoured to be on here. So I well, no, thank uh, you, mate. I appreciate that because that's like that's what I thought that I could bring is the the fact that it's I have a diverse group of people who i know so you know i'll talk to anyone about baking cakes if needs be but for for you to come on and say that you appreciate that thank you very much and you don't have to thank me for coming on mate. you're very much i've been looking forward to this so oh try and live up to expectation so <laughs> i am um, i'm a yeah i'm a doctor i uh, studied in edinburgh and then i went to work as a doctor you do your first two years kind of wherever they put you um i uh, i ended up working in wishaw and then in glasgow um during the kind of height of the knife crime epidemic so that was kind of an interesting insight into trauma stuff early on um while i've been at university i took part in um, an expedition to bolivia where we we got a subsidized expedition to bolivia if we agreed to take a load of random drugs at the top of a mountain um <laughs> and 
that was a fascinating insight. That was my kind of my first taste of what's now become known as extreme medicine or extreme environment physiology. Um, and so I kind of progressed through the, the NHS medical bit. Um, I went into anaesthesia and intensive care and did a few years of that. But at the same time, I always had this interest in how environmental forces like low levels of oxygen or colds or G-forces shape us and how our bodies respond to them. And so I spent some time working in New Zealand. I spent some time doing expedition work, um, things like Kilimanjaro and some work in the Andes, a um, bit in India, a bit in Nepal. And then I worked for yeah, the East African Flying Doctors out in Nairobi, getting some more trauma experience. And that took me to Somalia and all over East Africa. And that was incredible. And then I went back into the NHS for a bit and did a bit more and then got itchy feet again. And then ended up uh, doing a PhD at a place called the Extreme Environments Laboratory down in Portsmouth, which is just this incredible lab run by um, a guy called Mike Tipton, who specialises in cold water immersion and figuring out why people drown and all this sort of stuff. And he's got an amazing team around him and they were really welcoming. And that was kind of the anchor for me to do a bit of some of the paragliding work that I've been doing. Um, at the same time, a few more foreign trips gave me loads of time to get really deep into the flying. Um, and then that took me to COVID and that takes me to now. Wow. Um, so, I mean, that, like, it, you're sort of like, where do you start? Uh, part of me wants to go back to taking drugs on a mountain in Bolivia because... We can start with that if you want. <laughs> definitely. I mean, all, I can hear, whilst you say that, I can hear... Uh, uh, like a festival in my ear and a load of doctors dancing on top of a mountain in Bolivia. Um, now, was it this or, or was it something very different? I'd say it wasn't like that, but it was hilarious. Like we were, um, we took part in the first ever trial of Viagra at extreme altitude. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the world's least blinded, double blinded control trial. <laughs> and, the, um, the theory was that Viagra was originally developed for people with um, lung disease mm-hmm. because if you get uh, too much pressure in the arteries in your lungs, that back pressure then affects your heart. And so the idea was that if you had uh, a drug that relaxed the blood vessels of the lungs, that would take the pressure off your heart. And so that was why Viagra was developed. But then people just went, oh, I'd like to <laughs> something that a lot of money so (laughs) diverted viagra down the path for which it's known but because altitude illness at least in part is caused by high levels of uh pressure in the lungs it was a really reasonable theory that viagra might help prevent some altitude illness so we all went up this this kind of group of students to 5,300 meters with a an altitude profile designed to make us sick half of us taking viagra half of us taking a placebo um, like I say, relatively easy to tell who was who, and <laughs> uh, just and we all got so sick from the trip that so we were staggering around, vomiting everywhere with like a headache and a semi. And then, um, yeah, some of the couples, some of the couples are still together, but it was <laughs> it was it was it, they really are. Actually. But it was a uh, it was a hoot, and that was in two thousand and two, and it was. Not only was it a lot of fun, but it made me realise a couple of things. It, it, it got me so interested in the fact that some people seemed immune to the altitude. And 
I did really well at altitude and I do so badly at everything. I'm like terrible at sport. I trip over my own feet. So I was like, my God, I found a thing that I'm like not genetically shit at. <laughs> so that was a start. And I also, can be really high up with a hard on. I've discovered that's my yeah. niche. I'm like the, the world's highest altitude gigolo. What a party piece though, Wes. What a party <laughs> piece. <laughs> very, very specific circumstances which you can bring out. But like, you know, I was pleased to find it. So that was pretty cool. And I also realised that I could use medicine and science as a bit of a, a plane ticket to go to really interesting places and meet really interesting people. And so it was a great trip. It kind of sent me down that path. Yeah, it sounds... Uh, I mean, it... That could be a podcast in itself, that trip. It does sound awesome. And, I mean, the one question everyone's going to want to know, were you part of the placebo or were you part of the actual the the medicine bit? What did you get? Well, either I'm part of the placebo or I've got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say it's the placebo. <laughs> Let's say it's the placebo. Uh, <laughs> I've used for the last 15 years. <laughs> So interestingly, small little fact on that one, though, um, is that the guy who devised that trial is a guy called Kenny Bailey. And the, he did that kind of as a side project when he was a junior doctor. He's now one of the people leading the fight against COVID. He's become this kind of world-renowned expert on how you model the genetics of disease. And so for anyone who's, you know, really into the science of COVID, checking out Kenny Bailey and the Isaric Group's work is highly recommended. He's amazing. That I'll definitely be checking out. It's quite interesting because there was a phase where Viagra was used in MMA fights. Um, lots of fighters started dabbling with small bits of Viagra before fighting because of the cardiovascular or supposed cardiovascular benefits um, that Viagra can bring you. Obviously, you don't want to take half of Viagra or a whole Viagra, but it was Viagra and even Clembuterol for, for a small period. I'd heard of fighters using them at high, like really high-level guys experimenting with viagra because of the the supposed cardiovascular benefits that can come from taking um viagra which i mean let's say let's say that i maybe had took viagra before in the past i just from what i from what i know it makes you really hot and uh really thirsty so i'm not sure the benefits i've never taken it for an mma fight definitely i'm not sure what the benefits may be but it was a big thing for a little while people were experimenting with viagra that's fascinating. And um, have you seen Carry On Up the Kyber when they, uh, yes. <laughs> they terrify they terrify the locals yeah. by lifting up the kill? Maybe that's the answer. Is there a lot of um, substance kind of banned substance use in MMA? Um, so like, I've, I've been in MMA since before it was MMA. You know, I, it was cage fighting. It wasn't really MMA when I first started. I've been, I've been fighting professionally for 18 years now. Um, and there was a lot of banned substances in MMA back then. You know, steroid testing is still very much doesn't happen at the lower levels because it's so expensive. Um, and so go back in the day, it was frequent. I've never taken steroids, not for, for, for not for any other reason other than I've always had this thing about steroids fucking up my sex drive and my libido and my chance to have kids later on. And that's the only reason I never took steroids. So I'm not going to pretend that I'm really moral and I didn't take it because I didn't want to be a drug cheat or anything. I just was worried about the side effects that could come from taking from steroids. But I know that it was it was frequently used early on. And then now at the higher level, like UFC and stuff, there, you you can tell there are still some people who have found a loophole and they've got ways of getting around it, but 
it's a lot better than it was five years ago when we had people like Alistair Overeem and um, Vita Belfort, who these people were, you know, they, they made the 21-year-old versions of themselves look like absolute weedy weaklings. You know, they were turning up with immense physiques. Then Jeff Nowitzki got involved, who's the guy who brought down Lance Armstrong. And he uh, he got involved with the UFC, and th- these fighters' physiques changed dramatically. Within three months, fighters who were absolute monsters, and you know their performances changed, their uh, physiques changed dramatically. So at the highest level, it's a lot less now than it was. But in MMA as a whole... Yeah, I'd say there's a lot of banned substances from performance enhancing like steroids and stuff to maybe cocaine or, or any, speed or an amphetamine of any type. And then recently now, though, marijuana has been taken off of the banned substance list, which is very good, I think, because, you know, as a fighter, you don't want to be stuffing yourself full of painkillers for your whole career. But we, we suffer from this thing when you train and you get to the point that you overtrain. You find it very hard to switch off and sleep. That's one of my first signs that I've overtrained is my muscles twitch a lot and I can't really, when I try to go to sleep, it's almost like flu-like symptoms. I can't really get to sleep. But if you can smoke some marijuana or have a bit of uh, weed butter in a a coffee or something or a cup of tea, the level of sleep you can get and the, the, the level of relaxation that your muscles have I think it's a very good thing that that's now actually been taken off the banned substance list and that can be explored because otherwise we're going down the realms of lots of fighters using prescription medication and painkillers, which as we know, opiates in any form are probably going to be 10 times more dangerous than the effects of taking cannabis. I've got loads of questions. (laughs) (laughs) Because I guess in cycling, the reason why that they were taking steroids was for for recovery. Mm-hmm. It wasn't so they could get massive because it was all about um, enable them to train hard. That was the thing. And so because it was all about for them, it was all about power to weight and kind of training volume. And yeah. with um, with MMA, like is being massive helpful? Like I, I was saying to you just before the call, like I've, I've watched it because I didn't really know anything about MMA. So I watched a few videos and some of your fights and stuff. It didn't strike me that being a complete tank would be that helpful. It's not. It's it's, so. It's one of those things. This weekend, we saw a guy lose who was. He's probably one of the greatest jujitsu players to ever do the sport, and he fought in MMA, and he he has fought in MMA and done very well. And you see, in the first minute or so, in two minutes, he's very dominant, very strong, but he's very muscular, very muscle bound, and you can see that he fatigues very, very quickly. Now. Because the sport's very much dominated by weight categories now, you don't. There used to be a show called Pride, and you could you'd very often see a guy who was eighty kilos fighting a guy who was one hundred and thirty-five kilos. It was just a freak show event in Japan, and I mean it was absolutely brilliant, and I loved it. But it was very much based on that freak show event. Now, the the bigger guys are obviously a lot more powerful, a lot stronger. But if you're bigger because you're enhanced, then all the things that come along with carrying an extra 10 kilos of muscle will be quicker fatigue. Um, obviously, lactic acid threshold will deplete massively. And so you do see that the guys who are bigger, they're, it's detrimental in terms of um, performance if you look at it from a uh, the longevity of your performance. If, you wanna, if you're going to fight a five-minute five, a five, five round fight, 
the guy who's on steroids, unless he's obviously got a really good EPO cycle as well, is probably going to fatigue a lot quicker than a guy who's very clean and carrying very much his, his body mass, which he's meant to carry, you know? So that's one side where it can be detrimental. But on the other side, if you've got a guy who's super strong, really big, he has the ability to be sat on top of you, punching you in the face and elbowing you in the face. And that's why in cycling, the danger is you might face another guy who's not on steroids or performance enhancing drugs, and you might pedal faster than him. However, probably 80% of the field are all on the same stuff as you are. So it's about who's cycling better, you know? So for me, it was very much like, leave them alone. This, that's their sport. That's part of their sport. Leave them alone. They know the inherent like health risks. If they want to do that, let them do it. In MMA, I'm separating you from your consciousness. Now, if I can do that because I'm a lot bigger and stronger than you and I'm elbowing you in the face and I'm a monster, there has to be moral and conscience conscience implications to that you know you can't allow someone to go in who's performance enhanced and smash another man's face in you know i mean that seems a, a reasonable starting premise doesn't it? <laughs> and they, i know they're using um cocaine and amphetamines to make weight or for aggression it will be for a number of things lots of people will use like for uh, suppression of appetite and stuff, and then for making weight, etc. Yeah, it will be used for that. But also that little kick, that little bump, that little boost in the in the smaller. It, this is, and I'm not talking at the highest levels. The highest level guys now. It's it's such a a well respected sport now, and because of the things that people like Conor McGregor have done, the money that's now coming into the sport on a much bit over a much broader scenario as opposed to just being the UFC or monopolizing it, then lots of these people have now got real good, you know, nutritionists, strength and conditioning coaches, dietitians. So they don't need this sort of thing. So I'm talking on the whole, on the smaller shows. And, you know, we're still, at, for some reason, we're still at a point where on some events, guys have been matched an hour before their fight because their opponent answered up. So someone in the crowd has said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. So... That's the level of the sport still in the, in the lower levels, you know. So it, it does still have that inherent. The bits that you would associate go with cage fighting, not necessarily with MMA. That's oh. really interesting. And I think one of the things that struck me, have you ever read The Secret Race by Tyler Hamilton? I, I know the book. I haven't read it. Yeah, it's dead good. And it's he was one of the guys who testified against Lance Armstrong, not because he had a massive crisis of conscience, but because... Um, he had a blood transfusion, which was the wrong blood, and that blood had been tainted with steroids. So he got busted, oh, apart from having a horrific transfusion reaction. And then, um, yeah, kind of told all. And what's the, the bit that I found so interesting about that book was they were they were talking about how it was it was almost an honour to be chosen to dope because if you were a young rider it meant that the team believed in you, that they were going to invest in you by doing this. So there was this incredible psychological pressure, almost a psychological reward when they first, like when you first chosen to take steroids. Mm -hmm. And that actually gave me a lot of sympathy for them because it made me just think if you're like a, you know, an 18 year old rider desperate to make your career. And as you say, there's milliseconds between these guys and someone says, we believe in you take this pill. The pressure to do it would be absolutely enormous. 
Well, so, especially with the financial reward, because you've dedicated your life to something that has got absolutely no financial support. Cycling's like, when you consider if you were a soccer player or something, cycling doesn't even come into, into it, you know? Like you could probably be a, 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 a mid-distance track runner and be earning more money than a cyclist who's not performing well or who's not in the upper echelon. So when you've, you've got that, and then at the end of this, it's like, right, I can fulfill my dreams and i can be the guy who makes money and i can make this a sustainable career yeah that that must be massively um intimidating and then like lance armstrong says in his documentary he says that he tried a season he, he was reluctant he tried a season not doping he couldn't do anything he couldn't get near it now i much the thing with lance armstrong is He's a liar. We know he's a liar. So you can take you can take what he says with a pinch of salt. You can believe it, or you can say, "Well, he's at the end of his career. He's been exposed. What's he got the reason to lie for now?" But I think when you are then faced with that, and you've got right, these people believe in me. If I do take it, I believe in me, obviously, because I've got myself here. I can be the best in the world now because I just need this pill. Totally, and for what it's worth, Tyler Hamilton said the same. He said he called it. Um like they called it paniagua, like racing bread and water, which is basically not being on drugs. And he said he went from being in the top three with Lance Armstrong to like back of the field in a season. Done. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's the, the, the lure for continuing is got to be bigger than the lure to, to actually start. I should imagine if you, if you try it and you do well, and then you think I can't do this to my body. And then you come off it and you then at the back of the pack, the lure to continue taking it it's got to be worse than the actual law for taking it in the first place i would imagine totally but the reason why i'm against it the reason why i don't think it should be legalized is because the pressures are external it's like i, th I think you'll end up with because these things are harmful to your body like they absolutely are and i think if you have a situation where there's no alternative but to take drugs to compete at an elite level then that the pressure that that puts on somebody it's not a free choice yeah and so that's that's why i'm against it particularly yeah i mean i'm i'm uh, so i i'm against uh perform for me i'm just like when it comes to a sport like that i'm i'm like if they all want to do it then then let them do it but i don't advocate performance enhancing drugs in any sport because i've been largely in sport involved with a sport for my whole adult life so i'm like i don't want any performance enhancing drugs in any sport also for the reason that that's when you start getting 15 year olds taking steroids and their parents supporting the idea because that's what they do in the pros because I, we i i i've taught a lot of kids and i try to not let my kids spar with headshots very often at all or, or if at all and the amount of parents it's unbelievable who kids of eight and nine come to me like are oh, you gonna get them spar or like 10 and stuff and they want their kids punching each other in the face and i'm like no listen there's no benefit to this yet we don't need to make our kids tough all we're going to work on is technique we're going to work on stuff and they're like oh yeah but I, just, I want them to spar i want them to know i'm like well you put the gloves on you and i are going to spar and then you're going to see how much you want your kids to spar after that. And so that makes, that does make me worry that the pressure that will be put on younger kids. I mean, we know for a fact because of reports that this has happened in the NFL in America. We know that, that drugs and uh, performance enhancing drugs have been pushed on young kids because that's the only way to make it, you know? And I think that's the worry of condoning drug taking in sport is that, it filters down to the lower levels. 
Yeah, no, 100% agree. Um, actually, the other thing I was going to ask you is, see, having watched um, watched these videos, like, it strikes me that for a complete newcomer to MMA, someone who's like never watched this stuff before, it seems like you square up, you punt each other a bit, then there's a kind of hugging phase, and then somebody <laughs> knocks the other person out so, yeah. or makes them submit. My ideal and, fight. <laughs> indeed. Um, and... I guess it looked like during the during the kind of the grappling bits yeah. that what seemed to matter for an outsider was like muscle fatigue, like your ability to maintain that kind of the kind of muscular contraction to keep going. Yeah. And also, so um, how much is that, and how much is just pure pain tolerance? So when it comes to grappling, uh, the pain the pain threshold can be quite low because unless you're in something that's painful, like a, a neck crank or an arm bar where your arm might break and stuff, then the pain threshold's not that relevant. Lactic, lactic threshold is, ma- is massively important. And also like, so I think people underestimate how much, um, how much of an effect adrenaline will have on the body and its ability to perform. So I can, I could go now having not done any jujitsu for since the lockdown. I know I could go now and I could probably do six, five minute rounds of jujitsu with anyone. And I'm going to be okay. I'll be a little bit aching sore tomorrow. Cause obviously my muscles aren't conditioned at the moment. Cause we haven't been training, but I know I'm not going to gas out to the point that I feel sick and my mouth goes all watery. And I know my arms aren't going to burn out because I'll know when to use my strength, when to relax, when I'm in trouble, when to breathe, when to take some time, when I'm in top position, I don't need to squeeze people hard. So for someone like yourself, you're seeing two people wrestle and grapple and you're assuming that there's just constant locking of horns and you're, you know, you're constantly, and it's not like that. So if I'm, if I'm grappling with you and let's say you have hold of my, you have, have hold of my arm, I'm not going to try and pull my arm back constantly. Because now we're in a battle of my strength, your strength, my strength, your strength. I'm going to try and distract you by attacking your other arm. And as soon as you respond, I'm going to try and release this arm because I've taken your focus away. So rather than fight you strength for strength and we're both pulling on a Christmas cracker that won't break, I'm going to try and be the guy who relaxes as much as I can there. You think there's no threat with this arm anymore. Focus on something else. Boom, I release it and I go to something else. For someone like yourself, that's hard to imagine because you're just thinking like it's constant, like tension and constant. And people do fight like that. And they are the guys who suffer massively from fatigue, muscle fatigue, you know? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Because I was just thinking, I was like, my God, you've got to ache after that. If that was, <laughs> if it was just all contracted all the time. And you see, that must require a lot of situational awareness. Like you must have to be, you must have to be able to be very, present and 100 percent. and i think this is i've been very open about why i think i've lost some of my fights um i think i've only probably ever fought one guy who if we fought again you know the chat the the percentages would probably be in his favor every like every single time um i'm not saying i can't beat him i obviously can i wouldn't i wouldn't have fought the guy but that's only one guy in my whole career that i would give that to a lot of I'm very open to the fact that a lot of my issues have been mental. Now, I fought a guy, and I felt really good going into the fight. I don't really get nervous. I felt good in the fight. 
And then in, I came back after round one, and my corner was like, Wes, you got to get going. Like, what? You look like you're sparring. Then in my head, I, I felt like I was, like, having a good show. I felt like, like come on, you got, you got to get going. You can win this. So we come out in the second, and we're moving around, and I shoot a double leg on him, and he goes for a guillotine on me, which is like a, a choke, a neck choke. And I was like, oh, no chance. So I go for the takedown, get it off of a, a little single. And I can, I'm right by the commentators, and I can hear the commentator saying, oh, that guillotine's tight. That's a really tight guillotine. Merchers in. And I was there, and I was like, What's he fucking on about? Like, it's, this guillotine's not. He's not. There's no way he can guillotine me from here. I'm not. I'm not even in any trouble. What's the worst that can happen is if he switches to some. In the meantime, he's switched to something else. He's gone to a north. He's gone for a sweep, and I'm now in a north south. And it wasn't until after the fight I was like, I'm. A couple of times I've just not been there. If that makes sense, I'm sort of like listening to what the commentators saying, or I'm absorbed with something else and i think that the the best ways is being present being completely in the fight and it's not that i ever didn't want to be there or i was scared of getting a hit or any of those things because i'll be the first to say come on i was petrified that's why you know i'm just not one of those people who would make up bullshit i would just be like i shit myself so yeah i just for some reason and i'm sure i could have done some work uh, psychologically over the years and got to the bottom of it, but I didn't start to, to show a real interest in the psychological aspect until it was probably too late. Um, but yeah, that I feel has let me down the psychological aspect in that I was, I wasn't present in the fight. You know, I was like sort of too, I don't even know what it, I can't even put into words what it is, whether too relaxed or whatever it may be. But they're, they're issues that I've found. And I say to a lot of people who have lost, a lot of my fighters, because I coach now, a lot of the guys who, I've, who have lost on the night, I, I say to them that, you know, this is 15 or 25 minutes for you to show all the things that you have learned in an X amount of year career. You have 15 minutes where everything you have learned has to come together. Your game plan has to work. The psychology has to work. Your weight cut has to have gone right. The nutrition, you that weird gurgling feeling in your belly because you've ate loads of sugar and you've been dieting for a month. That has to go when someone's punching you. The, all the attributes have to come together perfectly and you have to remain a focused competitive athlete for 15 minutes. That's, that's hard. That is hard work and there's only a certain amount of people who can put that together consistently and they're the guys who are at the top that makes a lot of sense and i think that's kind of that's one of the things that makes particular sports really engaging is like when you have to bring everything that you are and everything that you've learned against something over which you have very little control and i think that's that's why I love flying. It's the same thing. It's because you can't cheat nature, you know, exactly. just in the same way that some guy who is, you know, has come to you with exactly the same intention. Like you, you have to, you have to give it your all. And there's something very honest and I think endlessly appealing about that. Yeah. And, and that's exactly it. That, that's the, that's the allure for me really is that, you know, there's no bullshit. I'm going to fight another man in a cage. There's no, you can say all you want before the fight and you can say this about your mom and his wife, or you can do all these things. But at some point, someone is going to shut the doors and we're going to fight. Now I've heard people lose and make excuses and I hear it. You'll never see that from me because I'm like, there's no, you've, I've just gone and fought another man 
and he's beat me. Like, that's the bullshit of it. And it's the very same thing. You know, I've took off with a paraglider. I've gotten a thermal. Everyone's gone up and I haven't. I've done something wrong. There's no, the bullshit aspect's gone because you're either on the floor or you're still flying. You're either in the fight or the fight's over. It's, that's how it is, right? Oh, 100%. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's why I love flying so much. <laughs> so um, how did you cause... how did you get to flying from, did, were you flying before you were studying or is it something that you looked at before you were studying or did you stumble across it or? No, so I um I started when I was at university. I got involved in the the Whitewater Kayaking Club. Like Whitewater Kayaking up in Scotland is just magical. It's fantastic, mm-hmm. and I made a load of friends there that are still my closest friends today. And we went all over Scotland, and we went a bit to Canada, we went to the Alps, um, and it was a brilliant experience for a number of reasons. It got me the tightest, most wonderful group of friends. Um, you know, when you're young and you're like, you know, you're, it feels like you're risking your life for the pursuit of a common goal. It's a very bonding thing. Um, so it got me that and it, it got me passionate about the outdoors and that, that feeling that being in the outdoors can bring you. But also it was terrifying and I went way too fast and I conflated lots of things together. I conflated what bravery meant you know all sorts of things you know i didn't realize when i was doing it that you're brave if you're doing something that you're scared of if you're not scared of it you're not brave (laughs) and so i'd be with all these people who were amazing and i'd be like my god i'm such a coward like i'm doing it but i'm terrified and and they and they don't seem scared at all that's just because they were like better than me (laughs) they were were doing it really well and so and that was just a really useful learning experience to separate what was true courage and what wasn't and it and I scared myself with this over the course of about five or six years um and then I took up mountain biking about the same time as I became a doctor got really into that um my my wife's really into that as well so we did that for a bit and that's brilliant um and then I did a tandem paraglide in the Alps and it was like this is it (laughs) <laughs> this is the one um and so it took me a little while it took me like a little bit longer before i could actually get the the cash and the time together where, um, where did but you we do went... your tandem where was it you did your tandem mate uh did my tandem in morzine um okay which was super cool and it was yep. like in retrospect like most tandems i got properly ripped off it was like three minutes and i paid loads of cash <laughs> just <laughs> top to bottom yeah three minutes top to bottom but if you're going to do a top to bottom you could be on the blorange in southeast wales or you could be in morzine so same thing but in, but it was enough just to be like this is something wonderful got to do this and so i went to new zealand to go and work as a doctor there and there was a guy who was teaching it and uh i signed up for him for a week's course and like even just like day one of ground handling, like everyone else had stopped and I was still having a complete ball. I was like, if it doesn't get any better than this, it's still brilliant. Um, And then it was a cool place to learn, like a place called Tomato Peak, which in retrospect, (laughs) it's really not an ideal beginner site. Like it's just a massive cliff. But I just sort of assumed that that was kind of normal. And the guy who um, taught me was very conscientious like you had to ground handle for about a month before you got to go up there and do lots of little short hops and it meant that I've always been unfazed by different takeoffs like nothing has ever kind of matched that um and I just 
loved it from there on in and I've done it as much as possible since but the great advantage of the kayaking was that I was able to pace myself I was able to know when I was pushing it too far when I wasn't and I'm very fortunate I've been flying for 10 years and it's it's never been scary yeah uh that is very fortunate definitely that's yeah and that's a, a that should be attributed to who you are and the way that you've dealt with it um and the white water rafting has definitely it's definitely helped you if you've scared yourself doing things like that and you can sit back consciously and say yeah i know what i did wrong there and i'm not going to do that with this because fundamentally paragliding will seem a lot riskier than white water rafting because you're off the ground so it would i bet it's not i bet white water rafting is pretty damn dangerous so um the the risk factor is probably not that too dissimilar, but because you're in the air and you're off the ground, it's going to seem that way. So the fact that you can do that, I mean, I, I uh, obviously I came from a base jumping background in uh, skydiving, so I'm quite good safety wise because you you don't really fuck up in base jumping. You know if someone's fucked up in base jumping because they're either not here anymore or they walk funny. So like, <laughs> you don't you don't generally you don't mess up too much, um, but. I also, I would say I'm probably known for pushing it quite a bit with paragliding in that, you know, I, I like to fly big distances. I like to fly comps. I like to do SIV and maneuvers. You know, I, I would say that possibly I'm known for being someone who does push a little bit for paragliding. But I do still consider myself to be quite safe. And I was quite lucky that I was sort of mentored into it. And one thing that was pushed into me was, don't go too fast. Don't go too fast. Don't scare yourself. I've seen lots of people scare themselves. Don't go too fast. And the thought of scaring myself out of something that I really loved, that scared me enough to think, eh, let's do this safely. Totally. And I'm a really firm believer in this idea of a fear injury. I think that's a thing. I think people get fear injuries and they have to be rehabilitated when they get them. And yeah. I definitely had a fear injury in kayaking, which... I chose not to rehabilitate because I went on to other sports. Um, but I look on avoiding fear injury in much the same way as I look on avoiding physical injury. And mm -hmm. it also means that you, it's almost like conditioning. So I, I, re I really ballsed up uh, over the summer on one flight and I found myself in a really stupid position. And it meant that I wasn't, I wasn't fear injured by it because I think I had enough reserve from 10 years of taking it slow and sensible to again have a, a bit like the COVID bit at the beginning, have a realistic calibration of what happened. Um, it meant that my imagination didn't run wild, I guess. Yeah, I think uh, I did a little talk a, a year or so ago and uh, on YouTube just because lots of people were talking to me about fear and I did a little talk and it's trying to get people to understand that, that fear is not a response. Being scared is like a response to something. If something happens, like your chair tips back, you're scared for an instant. For an in, for an instance, you're scared, like, you know, immediately. And you're like, oh, I don't want to fall. But the second that's over, if you now worry about falling off a chair again, that's fear. And that's very much man-made or the manifestation of the scarring from the from being scared so it's getting people to understand that the fear anything to do with fear is generally something that's never happened 
but you're imagining it will, or you're thinking what could do. And that's what you're saying about a fear injury. Is it, you know, you've scared yourself and how you let that manifest itself in your brain there thereafter is what will then become your fear injury, which can become a scar. I liken it to being a scar. You know, it can be really, really difficult to remove and is probably going to be there forever. And once you've got that scar, you know, it's really difficult to get rid of. So we, we, you've got to try and prevent getting them, which it seems like you, you obviously did. You got, you got it a little bit, but you've obviously prevented yourself taking that further into the next thing that you did, which is paragliding. Yeah, I think so. And, I think that's a good way of looking at it. I, I listened to your fear talk. I thought it was excellent. Oh, um, one of the bits, yeah, one of the bits that, that cracked me up in that as well is it's like when you were talking about your past jobs and one of them was just moving gypsies. <laughs> it was like a job. Sometimes people come up to me and they say things like you just said then. And I'm like, it takes me a minute to think, is that not normal? <laughs> because it's just, things that i've done and people are like, used to move gypsies that's nuts i'm like is it not is that not just normal <laughs> yeah i was just like i was like oh yeah <laughs> don't remember that on the like the, the careers card <laughs> <laughs> it's not that one's um, not on the cv it one's not on the cv <laughs> um no you're you're absolutely right but i think one of the things that's interesting is how much of this is and isn't in your conscious control and i think in the same way that when you twist an ankle, the act of twisting your ankle is not within your control. And I, I, I come, I've sort of come to the view that the act, the act of being fear injured, that's not within your control. But like the conditioning before it to stop injury and the rehab that you do after is in your control to the extent that you have the structures and the guidance and the mentors to help you through. But I don't think you can think yourself out of the the situation that injures you i guess does that make sense yeah i yeah that makes complete sense to me yeah and i i i would completely agree with you that makes complete sense what i'm interested in is say so have you done any research on the physical effects of fear when it comes into it say if we have a big collapse or something like that have you done any any research on what the actual physical response is to the body when fear plays a part in your flying um not directly but it's something i've read a little bit about obviously that's not not much has been done straight up in paragliding about that um the most kind of fertile source of research in this is helicopter underwater escape training so if you want to uh, go and work in the North Sea, you have to do some training where you get put in a helicopter, they turn the lights off, they roll you upside down, and they dunk you in water and you have to get yourself out. Mm-hmm. And it's it's probably, at least in terms of research ethics, the most scared you can make somebody and then research on them. Because, you know, you get these like, you know, really tough guys whose jobs depend on this, who are breaking down and vomiting in fear. And, what they find from that is that there are certain behaviors that you see um and those behaviors can be people being like their brain slowing down to the point where they can't do much or being hyperactive or repeating the same action over and over again all sorts of little things that you see and when i did the reserve studies i saw evidence of some of that behavior and I think it explains a little bit about why sometimes people don't pull their reserves when they should. 
Um, so slightly round the houses answer, but there is research out there that's relevant to us. I've not pulled it in directly. I've just seen hints of it in some of the other work that I've done. Yeah, because I mean, that's an area that I'd be interested in reading about, but it's going to be so difficult because you can't simulate an incident in paragliding. You can do SIVs and stuff, but you the anticipation takes away a massive element of the fear, right? So, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be a difficult one that you could obviously make it specific to one sport, I guess. But it would be fantastic to get some data about what actually happens and stuff there. Totally. So the research for people who are interested has been done by a guy called John Leach um, and Sarita Robinson. The, and, you know, you talked in your fear podcast a bit about the amygdala and some of the kind of the neuroscientific basis of some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And they start, they look at some of that. They look at the effects of things like cortisol and adrenaline on the way you form memories or the way you don't, um, what patterns of thought you leap into, all that sort of stuff. So if that's, if that's a source of interest, that's a great place to go. Yes, yeah, superb. I'll definitely look at that. Thank you very much. Um, so your, your main research then, mate, what brought you, let's go back to the, the thing that you did first, which I think was the altitude hypoxia sort of stuff, was your the first big one within the paragliding world that stood out, let's say. What brought you to want to pursue that? Does that come back from Bolivia and stem from the research that you've done from there? And um, what did what were you hoping to achieve and did do you think you achieved it in in your studies um yeah i think as i said flying became this kind of all-consuming love that it still remains 10 years later and so you know i'd be a bit work thinking about flying <laughs> <laughs> you know as as an anesthetist your, your job is to manage human physiology and you also it, it's one of the the specialties that was the first to embrace things like human factors and lessons from aviation and so I started to to wonder what um what I could take from my work to paragliding and if there were any insights that could be gained either to make the sport safer or that would just be interesting and I think I sort of subconsciously knew at the time that the the money area, the bit that would pay off, was the kind of human factor side and also the um, some of the ergonomic stuff, like the stuff I did with paragliding, like, you know, how we behave relative to our equipment under certain circumstances. But I had no frame of reference for that. I'd never really done anything related to that. But physiology, at least, was my comfort zone and altitude physiology especially. Um, and then, I, I, like I say, I met the, the team at Portsmouth who were kind of endlessly supportive and gave me a structure around which to do it. And so the first question I wanted to ask myself was like, wh- why is it tiring? Because I'd, I'd been flying in India um, and, you know, these kind of six, seven hour flights and I'd land like destroyed. And I was like, is that <laughs> because I've run a marathon? At al- you know, is it because I've been at altitude or is it like, like going for a long drive just because it's, it's mentally exhausting and I'm feeling that yeah. physically? And so I wanted to ask that question. And the way to do that is to measure oxygen consumption in flight because if you're consuming a lot of oxygen that means your muscles are working and that means it's physically tiring if you're not consuming a lot of oxygen like because your brain consumes about the same amount of oxygen whether you're thinking hard or not it just Mm -hmm. sort of functions um and so that was the first one and so with the support of jock and chris white and josh sanderson and and coco lamy at the sharp open we went and we put 
what became known as the gimp mask study we put these kind of blue rubber <laughs> masks with um turbines on so we can measure oxygen consumption and we got um four pilots to fly a couple hours in the shower open and we looked at how much oxygen was consumed and then we went to flyo who have been another amazing supporter of the work and we did the same thing but with acro and we kind of showed that actually it's not very physical like it's in it's in the, it's in your head that's the bit where it gets tiring mm-hmm. and that sounds really obvious but i didn't think it was a given before i started and i wanted to know because it would have so much implications for training and other things if if it had been a physical thing i think still think being in good shape helps you but i think being in good shape helps you because of your ability to maintain like isometric contraction to your ability to hold the same posture for a while you're i think it's that kind of stuff that's helpful not if i run if i become like an amazing marathon runner i don't think that's going to make me a better pilot except in terms of mental discipline yeah yeah that i mean that you you say that it seems quite obvious about the mental side of things but i think the physical element because obviously conversely i've spent most of my life in physical uh attributes like as in um being a a fighter etc and a coach so for me i would be thinking you know like how much of this is physical there's got to be a demand on the body when flying but having because one thing i noticed when i've flown a long time is my forearms ache a lot now i've got big forearms just randomly have big forearms from judo and stuff so i noticed my forearms don't, don't brag with don't brag <laughs> <laughs> that's my only claim that's my only brag is the size of my forearms <laughs> like um, that's my an- anatomical prowess right there um but i so when i started flying my enzo people said oh how'd you find it from the Zeno?" i'm like my forearms ache a bit more <laughs> than flying the enzo and then so i would be curious to know I would have been curious to know, you know, how much demand is there physically? I mean, obviously, your back's going to ache, your legs are going to ache, you're sat in a prone position and all these sort of things. But the, I think maybe even pilots underestimate that mental, uh, the, the demand on you mentally because people assume it's serenity when you're flying people assume that you're up there and we isn't that pretty and you get people then like harry who's taking amazing pictures and people are oh well if you can do that and i've taken phone calls and stuff while i'm flying and people think that nothing's actually going on but i guess even if you're at a plateaued level of um you know your your fear you're quite plateaued and you you manage to to stay in this constant level of where you are emotionally the plan in the next cloud and oh am i going to make this firm or am i going to do this and so when you put that then with the maybe oxygen deprivation in the bits that you're not thinking about i guess the physical demand is now that you've said it, it seems obvious um you know the physical demand is the one that's the drain on the system uh, sorry the, the mental, mental, you mean. The mental yeah. is the sorry yeah yeah no i think you're right and i think so to sort of split that up a bit, I think, yes, there are some physical demands, but they, they come from maintaining the, the posture and the weight on the brakes. And that can definitely be trained for. But I think that can be trained for as much through flexibility as strength. So I think if you have good core strength and you've got nice, flexible, like hammies and quads, then that then translate up the muscles in your back to stop it being too achy. Mm-hmm. The, the mental stuff, 
and I think serenity can be fatiguing. Like I find it particularly serene and relaxing. That doesn't mean it's not knackering at the same time. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yes, you're right. There's a lot, there's a huge amount going on mentally. And I think that's one of the reasons why we stay engaged in the, the sport. And I think that's one of the, if you want to look at it as a danger, one of the dangers to us is that of mental fatigue. Hypoxia is a separate component. So I think at the kind of levels we fly in the UK and at alpine altitudes, Hypoxia is a thing, but it's not a particularly big deal um, because we're not exercising hard enough for it to become a big deal. Mm-hmm. And one of like, the reference studies in this was a study done by a guy called Adrian Smith in helicopter load masters in Australia. And he, had, he studied people flying at 5,000 feet and he found that the pilots weren't showing evidence of hypoxia, but the load masters who were doing stuff that was physical were. And then a guy called Pete Hodkinson then developed this still further and kind of showed that that was, that was a thing. And I think when we're flying, we're not consuming enough oxygen for hypoxia to become an issue at UK and low alpine altitudes. If you're flying in like Sun Valley or, you know, 4,000 plus metres, that's a whole other story. But that's, yeah. that's kind of not us at the moment. Sorry, sorry, to, but, to cut me, I'm gonna, sorry to cut you off, mate, two seconds. To, to understand hypoxia and what it is more so, it's... Is it not, and I've got this thing of, I talk, I talk a bit matter of fact as if I know what I'm on about, and I wholeheartedly want you to say, shut up, you dickhead, that's not it at all. But, I, but the way I speak, I talk as if I know what I'm on about, and I haven't got a clue. So please just say, story, shut of, up, my, story of my life, mate, crack on. <laughs> yeah, just turn around and say, shut up, you dickhead, that's not it at all. But so I, to understand a bit more about what hypoxia is, it's not the body's ability to take in oxygen it's the body's ability to transport the oxygen it does take in around the body and use it um yeah kind of so that what you're describing is is yeah your ability to utilize oxygen and that's when people talk about their vo2 max Mm -hmm. that's what that is vo2 max is your ability to get oxygen from the outside world to the places that need it particular muscles hypoxia is the condition where you've not got enough of that going on. Yeah. So, so hypoxia is when the parts of your body that need it, in particular the brain, is short of it. Mm-hmm. And that can be caused by either you being in, in an environment where there's just not enough of it about, so being at high altitude, or because you're not fit enough, or because some part of your body isn't working so like carbon monoxide poisoning for example is hypoxia because what's happening is you're poisoning your red blood cells so you can't get the oxygen from where it needs to be but in this context what we're thinking about is hypoxia because of altitude so you're so high that the oxygen molecules are further apart each time you take a breath in you get fewer oxygen molecules and finally when you transport it around the body it doesn't get to where it needs to be so your brain is coming up short Mm -hmm. yeah it's uh i think that's a a good you know there will be people listening to this who aren't familiar familiar with what necessarily hypoxia is and then we'll say maybe but there's bounds we you're you're flying there's gonna be loads of air for you to breathe i don't understand why so i think it's good to to maybe emphasize exactly what hypoxia is and why you wanted to study the effect so yes sorry to have cut you off there mate go back to where you were buddy yeah, no, no, not at all. It's just to chip in on that last bit. So one of the 
one of the joys of being a doctor is being a dick to medical students. That's like <laughs> the perk of the job. And, you know, one of the questions that you can ask people is, you know, what percentage oxygen is at the top of Everest? And they just like puzzle and puzzle and they're doing maths. And it's, it's the same. Like there's 21% oxygen at sea level and there's 21% oxygen at Everest. But the difference is, is that because the pressure is lower, those oxygen molecules, even though they're in the same proportion, are further apart. Yeah. So when you say, yes, there's plenty of air to breathe, yes, there is. It's just that the bits of air that we're interested in, the oxygen molecules, get more and more scattered the higher up you go. Yeah, so it's like, I guess it would be like drinking drinking um, water and drinking carbonated water, you know? It's just one of those things. Like there's the amount, the, there's the same amount of oxygen or the same amount of water, let's say, but there's a... Oh, I fucked this up, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> I know what I'm trying to say, but I've not said it properly at all. I know exact. I know exactly what what it is that you're saying. Um, I wanted to relay the fact that I understood. That I wanted you to know that I understood that, and I, I fucked it up. And now I'm one of those junior doctors. I'm not. I'm the janitor, and you're taking the piss out of him now. You're you're a bully, Matt. You're a bully. <laughs> Never, never take the piss out of the janitor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but basically, I understand stuff? what you're saying. So your your lungs are sucking in the same quantity; they just don't contain the same amount of things that we need from it. You got it exactly right. that. Exactly that. I could have said that just like that, and that was saying. Yeah, well, mate, I could have said that um, just like that as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's true. So I guess the bit that I was going for before is that if you're flying at the kind of uk and alpine altitudes there might be less but there's enough providing that you're not doing that much physical exercise mm -hmm. if you're into hike and fly and if you land on the top of mont blanc and then you start running to take off then you're suddenly doing exercise then there's definitely not enough and then you run into bother which is what we saw last year yeah and uh, so um, MMA fighters have been known to go to places like Mexico City a month or eight weeks before a fight because the the um, obviously the altitude and stuff compared to where they live. Or if you train at say Denver, Colorado, I went training in Denver when I was in Denver. I trained in Denver Springs, and I was shocked at how much of an effect that had on me. And people do. There was a, a famous fight, a guy called Cain Velasquez. He was known for, he's a heavyweight guy, known for being the cardio god, the fittest heavyweight of all time. He fought a guy called Fabrizio Verdum. Verdum went to Mexico City eight weeks before the fight. Kane flew down like five days before and Kane gassed. He got, like, the, the, and people were saying you can't underestimate the effect that trying to have that work rate and that output in these conditions will have. So I guess the, the MMA guys relate, uh, listening can relate it very similarly to the same thing. Totally. And I mean, that's an interesting question in itself is the training value of being at altitude. And there's definitely a, a sweet spot there. So if you, once you've been at altitude for a couple of days, your body starts to acclimatize and it takes about seven days for you to, for your heart and lungs to fully acclimatize. And then over the course of the next kind of month, you start generating more red blood cells. And that's what gives you, when you then come back down to sea level, that's what gives you the boost. The, it's like taking EPO. It does the same thing. It's actually your body produces EPO when you're up there. Yeah. That's what produces the red blood cells. The problem is, is that it's also taking a toll on your body. And you also can't train as hard for the reasons you've just said. 
And so it's actually still a little bit controversial as to whether spending a long time at altitude gives you a net gain. Like it gives you a very like tangible, like measurable gain in oxygen carrying capacity because you've got more red blood cells. But also you've spent the last month potentially not training quite as hard. Your blood's become a bit thicker. It's flowing less well. You've had a bit more inflammation in your body. And so it's kind of interesting. You'd think that'd be one of those things that we're totally sold on. Training at altitude, definite boost if you're an MMO fighter or something like that. Actually still a tiny bit controversial and still a bit debated. Yeah. I I mean, I obviously know very little about the subject because I've only only heard it from from experiences like the King Velasquez thing. And then when I trained at Denver, obviously, like it did, it had an impact on me when I trained there compared to training in California or something. But the long-term effects I've never explored. But it is interesting for you to say that it's quite still quite controversial a subject. It is, yeah. And, you know, people are going to, like, like ridiculous lengths to try and, like, sort it out. You know, they've got, like, a Swiss chalet where they've, like, pressurised some rooms so people can be at sea level and not know they're at sea level. And, like, all that sort of stuff. Like, people are going to, like, insane detail to try and work this out. But I also think it's really sport specific and people tend to do these studies on like usually Nordic skiers just because they're absolute units mm-hmm. and they're really, really driven. And so I think one of the things that we're learning in sport in general is that, you know, a training method that works really, really well in one particular discipline may not be the one for another discipline. And also the studies that you do it's really important to think about how much you can translate. And actually the most kind of shameful and obvious example of that is pretty much every study in sports science until recently has been done on young blokes. And <laughs> when you actually, you know, I think it's, it's like sports science just discovered that women have periods and that might affect their performance <laughs> about kind of 15, 20 years ago. And yeah. that maybe the study done on the young bloke might not apply to like half the population. <laughs> so I, I guess what I'm saying is like, treat treat things with a bit of context and a bit of a pinch of salt as to how relevant what they've done in a scientific study is to you and your training i suppose that'd be my global message but you've so you've you've looked at things you've looked at things very logically i would say you've looked at things like a doctor more than a scientist there because you've looked at stuff as a doctor you understand everyone's individual and everything's different scientists are generally trying to prove this one thing right so i i think the way that you've looked at it there is like a doctor and it's a superb way of looking at it. you know you've broke it down and you said like yeah listen this this is right we can prove this is right a hundred percent of the time if we do it re- if we replicate it in this way all the time but we have to now look at things can be a lot broader and it won't be replicated a hundred percent of the time so it's not going to work so i think that's a great a that- great way of looking at it that's kind of you, so that's actually that's doing a disservice to scientists because actually the guys who are really looking into this at the moment um, are particularly in extreme physiology. There's this really interesting question, which we came back to with the Bolivia thing. Like, why was I fine at altitudes as a high altitude gigolo? And why... Um, that's, why your new, that's your new mantra. You are the, the high altitude gigolo. I'll, I'll take that, Wes. I've been called a lot worse. And... Um, <laughs> when um you know how some people find and others aren't this question of like of inter-individual variability is the like the fancy name for it like and it applies not just to external stresses like oxygen and cold 
but also training. Like, why do some people respond to particular exercises and others don't? And it's kind of the hot topic in, in sports science and other stuff at the moment. So it's definitely being looked into. How much is genetics? How much is attitude? How much is training? And I think it's what we're going to see more and more of over the next little while is it's the next step in personalized training programs really it's understanding people's own physiology and working out the best way to train and i guess we're we shouldn't we shouldn't look past the fact that we we're we're in a, a period of time where science can move really quickly but for a, a huge part of our of our modern history like as in you know during our lifetimes in certainly during our parents lifetime science wasn't evolved enough to give us the answers that we can now get so we can get scientific answers at such a speedy rate now and the development can be so fast that we can be critical of stuff that happened 15 years ago because we're not appreciating that science wasn't evolved as evolved back then so now the science that we're working with on a daily basis has evolved just as quick as the things that they are studying so i think that that is um important to understand that you know that being critical of science 20 years ago is you know you you, you forget that science 20 years ago wasn't as evolved as it is now oh totally and i look forward to in 20 years us saying the same thing about now i think that like this the strength of science is in kind of is fair criticism like that's the that's that's what separates it from conspiracy theories it's it's the ability to pose a question and say like why is this happening and then say i'm going to investigate it like this and then at the end someone to come back and say i like the way you investigated it there's lots we can learn from that but these were some of the ways you investigated it wrong or less well let's build on that and improve and so everyone stands on the shoulders of giants like it's definitely i'm not saying that like 15 years ago there were mugs and suddenly we're right that's it's completely the opposite it's more that through respecting and understanding what they did we can then get stronger and stronger and stronger exactly yeah exactly the the, the people 25 years ago were brilliant minds and the people 400 years ago who were measuring the the size of the earth without even any mathematical equipment are geniuses and the people who have learned from them those people and are now evolving that are brilliant as well you know these are all brilliant minds it's just the science and the technology is evolving as quickly as the minds are um totally. so your your hypoxia study that you did the things you what were you looking were you looking for any answers or were you looking to prove a theory that you had right and do you think that you did that or did it throw up some things that you thought ah actually you know did you end up questioning anything at the end yeah definitely so i so i did that initial one on the body saying like you know is it physically or mentally tiring conclusion mentally tiring the i then went to try and like look at our cognitive function and say like are we making good decisions when we're flying at flying altitudes and i think the and that was probably the weakest study that i've done but it was the one where I, as an individual, learned the most. And I think it's more my, speaks more to my research, I can't even less pretentious way of putting it, my research journey in terms of how I <laughs> learned to be a better scientist um, than what I found. So what I did was we went to a hypobaric chamber, or not hypobaric, a, a low oxygen chamber in Portsmouth. We had 10 pilots 
they flew a two-hour flight up to the rough equivalent of uh, 3,600 meters. And they did a bunch of tests along the way, looking at their ability to, you know, kind of decision-making skills, planning, logical reasoning, all this sort of stuff. And my theory was, if I take people up to 3,600 meters, we're going to see that they make their capacity to make decisions is reduced. The problem was, is I thought that seemed like a good idea for a study. But what I started to realize is that you can do, do tests in a chamber, but it's not really very representative of what people are doing in flight. You know, the tests in a chamber were things like, you know, your ability to like stack one disc on top of another. What does that say about how you're going to fly from one thermal to the other or go down that valley or the other? Um, and it was worth trying. But I think what I came out with was a bit of a muddle. Um, and it really made me refocus. It made me think, right, OK, I've done some physiology stuff. That might be my comfort zone. But what's actually going to change things for pilots? Like what's going to make the sport safer? And that brought me to the the reserve work because all through when I was doing stuff, there was this little narrative of like, yeah, but people don't throw the reserves. You know, yeah. you read the accident reports, like 94% of incidents from the BHPA accident reports for the last nine years, people haven't thrown a reserve. Now, I would wager that in some of those 94%, it would have been a good move. Yeah, yeah, so, definitely, yeah. 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 And so that's when I started to look at that. And so I had this amazing opportunity through the Thames Valley um, hang gliding and paragliding club to get their big fat repack, which is a cracking event. And we used that as an opportunity to stress people out a little bit and then let them go down a zip line, try and shut the reserve as fast as possible. And we filmed it. And from that, we started to pick out ways that people behave under stress. Some of the stuff we were talking about earlier, do they freeze? Where do their hands go? Where do their eyes go? How can we design kit better? And so we made some recommendations from that. And that was very well received by the community and very kindly looked at by the community. But the overwhelming criticism from people and from manufacturers was, yes, but most accidents, people are spinning round and round. They're not going forwards. And that's totally valid criticism. And so we um, then went to a G-Force uh, centre in Germany. Again, amazing crowd, a place called Flugschul Hochries. And we put 88 pilots round a centrifuge, half going forwards, half going backwards. We gave them the same psychological stress. And again, we filmed them. And then from that, we came to some conclusions about how we can make harnesses safer and a little bit about how we can change training. Wow. It's, I mean, I obviously, I've read up uh, about your, the, the things that you've done in Germany and what, it always struck me what the outcome for you was were you doing it to make paragliding equipment better which obviously you know have all these paragliding equipment manufacturers invested money in you and said like get, get us a better design for this or was it you know you want to make it safer or were you doing it really just to as the the intellect that you are to to find the answers to the question that because i mean these questions will obviously be sitting in your head and it must be torturous i wonder though and i want so to be able to have the the foresight the ability the imagination to put them together into a study that you did do and then come out with these things must have been amazing 
yeah it was really satisfying <laughs> that's very kind of you to say so it was also an incredible team effort and like that cannot be overstated like the the final study design was the result of input from so many different people and so many like you know better minds than i um and so many people helped on the day so very much a team effort i think my motivation behind it was there were questions i wanted to answer i did want to make the sport a bit safer um i was kind of progressing my own research journey a little bit as well you know working towards phd and other things so that was helpful in terms of pure funding it was self-funded um and then i managed to sort of claw together different bits of funding from various different sources people at like the royal aeronautical society um a bit from the dhb a bit from bhpa a lot of begging borrowing and stealing <laughs> and together we kind of managed to to get it done on a bit of a shoestring um but it was really satisfying it was yeah i don't know it felt like actually yeah it felt like actually completing something that might um make a change for the better oh i think i think it's one of the most important pieces of work that's been done in the sport for a very long time i think because it can translate directly to the user like there's lots of studies and safety studies and stuff that are done which affect the manufacturer and they can work with it but this can relate and also can be communicated to the user really easily you know and that's the thing is it i think it's so important just simply because everyone knows how important their reserve is and there is a reason people aren't going to it aren't using it aren't doing it. so for someone to research that and then come up with is it and handle position is it this and i think one of the elements if i remember right is it handle position didn't make a difference from left-handed to right-handed people being able to reach the the reserve. So for you to take, to look at things at such a end user, uh, in such an end user way, not from a manufacturer's point of view of if I put this handle here, and I'm not saying this is what manufacturers do. It's not me berating manufacturers in the slightest, but for you to look at in a way that affects the end user, as opposed to if I put this handle here, where am I going to put a flap for a bottle or whatever, however they go about designing. I think it's one of the most important pieces of work that's been done in recent years because it can have such a long-term effect and can translate so easily to the user. That's really kind of you. Thanks, Wes. And I think it kind of clarified for me what I enjoy in research as well, which is really helpful. Like the physiology stuff was was good, but I think there are so many questions you can ask that it made me realise that what I like, it, if you can ask questions where you can change stuff as a result and also where you can communicate that result to the people who need it. And just on a personal level, I feel lucky to have done it because I was like, right, okay, well, this is where I need to go in the future because actually this is like, this is what I find satisfying and what I think is useful. In terms of the manufacturer stuff, I have a lot of sympathy for them because people buy harnesses based on cost, weight and aerodynamics. Yeah. They don't buy it because they've, you know, my, what a beautiful fancy reserve handle you have. <laughs> and so, and also they have competing demands because they have to, meet other standards like things like back protection and other stuff like that so it's it's not a straightforward deal to say i've given you what you need to know to fix it go fix it but that said i do like the feeling of posing the design as a bit of a challenge and say well you know twenty five thousand people have watched this video i've said 
some of the ways I think harnesses could be better. Go for it. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's bound to be... You would have to be silly to be a developer of paragliding equipment and have this guy who's dedicated himself, he's come up with this study, he's respected, he's obviously intelligent, he's put together this study, everything's there for you, and he's, he's produced something that says, this is... I'm not going to say the best way. This is optimal. This is optimal for for this to be here or to have this or to be this grip or to look like this. You've got this guy who presented this with you. You'd have to be pretty silly to be a, a developer to not say, right, okay, we're making this and we love the design, but get Matt's work a second. Let's just have a quick look. Can we make it a bit more in line with this, you know? Or you'd have to either be really arrogant or really up against the, well, I think, broke, don't fix it attitude to not look at that, right? I hope so. And I guess, like, just the flip side of that is I don't want to be arrogant either. Like, I don't want to say my answer is completely bang on. I think it's a step forward. But mm. the bit that keeps me up at night is, like, manufacturers have been very receptive and they have been responsive yeah. to the video and stuff. So what have I got wrong? <laughs> like, because uh, <laughs> I've got something wrong because I've not done anything in my life where I've not got something wrong. So... And when you're dealing with people's lives, you just kind of wonder, I hope that whatever I've got wrong through this work isn't so drastically wrong that it makes it worse for somebody. Yeah, I mean, which I'm sure, it, I, from talking to you and seeing the work, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's not. And what were the, are there like any bullet points to the conclusions that you found that you can tell us that, the, the changes that you think need to be made from your point of view? Is it as simple as, look, Wes, handles are four centimetres too small in, and other wrongs. Is it, was there any sort of specific bullet point changes that you thought had to be made? Absolutely. So split them into like design changes and training changes. Yeah. So design changes. Um, I think what really came out is that people don't look for their reserve handle. They feel for it. Like that, that's one of the conclusions I say with the most certainty. And so I think what we need to do then is have reserve handles that are prominent enough, not such that we have tons of accidental deployments, but prominent enough that people in gloves can feel for them. They can get their hand around them because people like to encircle their hand around it. They don't, like you see you saw in the videos people were never subconsciously satisfied if they just got a thumb in like yeah. they'd wait until their hand was around it so it's got to be big enough and prominent enough that it can be found in gloves encircled the next bit is where you put the handle and what we found is that people use their anatomy as, as a reference so they would naturally the majority of people went for their hip when they were being spun backwards their hands i think were drawn a bit further forwards along their thighs but fundamentally then they would search back to their hip so the handle should overlie the hip it shouldn't be behind it because that makes it really hard just from a kind of angle of throw but it should sit on the hip and it should be easily grabbable then once you grab it and chuck it the reserve bag has to come out in basically whatever direction you pull it because some harnesses are designed such that they're designed to be pulled outwards but we found a large proportion of pilots like to pull straight up they like to engage their biceps, 
strong muscles of their back and core to pull straight upwards. And we saw pilots like that struggle and the bags would get stuck and they'd struggle against it and they couldn't get the bag out and they'd change their grips. They can pull up even harder because like I said, when people are stressed, they can't innovate. They do the same thing over and over again. And so I'd like to see it that no matter what direction you pull the handle, that bag comes out. And I think those were like the key messages for designers. Mm-hmm. For training, it just struck me that we don't, we just need to get closer to our reserve. You know, the sort of soldier going bed to bed with his rifle type thing. Like we need to love our reserve system. And so even as students, you know, in a school, it needs to not be this mystery object. Like they need to like understand, okay, it goes in here. If it falls out, this I put it back in. This is where it's rooted to. These are the shoulder bits. Okay, it's gonna come out of that. Fine. Then as we progress as pilots, we need to really visualize those times when we're gonna throw a reserve. What's that gonna look like? What's that gonna feel like? And then when we're in flight, safe on glide, repeat that visualization. Think like, what would it be like if I was going to have to deploy my reserve at this point and then reach for the handle, wrap your hand around it and go through the motion, ideally not deploying, but go through the motion of deploying your reserve parachute. So you've thought about the circumstances, you've linked it to a feeling and you're doing this in flight. And then when you get the chance, go and do an SIV course, which you've got to do anyway. I'm like, all the work I've done, I've come out has pointed SIV, SIV, SIV. Um, But uh, go and do it and then just chuck it get a feel for chucking it in midair because all the work I've done relates to a tiny sliver of the reserve throw, just the action of throwing. It says nothing about you remembering to throw it or the feeling of doing it or how you disable your wing after you've thrown it. I've just looked at a tiny sliver of that whole chain and chucking your reserve in SIV is a really good way to bring home the other parts of the chain. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those, um, it's, it's to to uh, relate it to something we've already spoke about in MMA. You know, it's one of those. You know, throwing punches is the best way to learn how to throw punches, and throwing kicks and checking kicks is the best way to learn. Now, you can't throw your reserve safely most of the time that you're flying because you don't know what's going to happen when you throw throw your reserve. But it has struck me before the 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 most popular part of paragliding is ridge shoring. I think everyone can agree on that, right? It's, it's done by the most amount of people most frequently when you're messing around four or 500 feet above the hill. Why not every time? If you know, you're not going to check your reserve. Can I reach it? Check my, ah, there it is. Boom. Check my reserve. Get familiar with how does my shoulder feel when I do that? Maybe like, you know, lean to the left and see if it makes it easier because you're boating up and down doing this, pulling the same old strings, the same old way. Just do those little things. Just do those little checks. You know, as soon as I'd learn after my first SIV, I, when I came back to ridge shore and I'm not a massive fan of ridge shore and I like to fly cross country. And so when I do ridge shore, I like to get really high and away from the bits going to hurt me the ground. So when I did learn after my SIV, I started doing loads of wing overs and loads of um, like, that I can't remember what they call it, but that, that dolphin in movement, you know, that you do with your wing. I started to do pitch control, lots of pitch control and stuff because I'm not going anywhere. So I might as well do the things that are going to benefit me. So it struck me as, you know, when I'm, when I'm a skydiver, when we were learning how to skydive, you'd always practice pull, practice pull. 
And then so sometimes when I was going out on flood jumps, I would just practice pull. Or when I'm base jumping, I guarantee you, if I'm approaching an exit, I'm checking where my where my um, pilot chute is all the time. I'm just feeling it. Yeah, still there. I've walked past a bit of brush. Yeah, it's still there. You know, even though I'm on the ground and you, you're practicing your arch. So it, does, it, it has struck me before on the ground thinking, nobody checks their reserve when you're just flying and you've got loads of time to do it. Totally. And I mean, I... So I learned to skydive uh, a few years ago and I've been hanging out a bit with um, with Diggs and uh, Sam Hardy in the base jumping crowd out in Lauterbrunnen. Amazing. Um, I, there's so much to learn there. Like there's so much to learn. Um, and like those guys are just master risk mitigators. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's amazing to watch them operate. And it was fascinating because I was, I was giving a talk in the the Horner pub in um in Lauterbrunnen and the like the half the room you could see were like these guys in like their late 30s and early 40s who'd been base jumping for like 15 years and had not sprained a finger yeah and the other half were these really aggressive young blokes whose days were numbered and you could see it. And all I, the, the whole way through that talk, I was just thinking, like, I wish the left-hand side of the room is going to talk to the right-hand side of the room. Yeah. <laughs> and that there's going to be some good yeah. mentorship there. But the bit that struck me about both base jumping and skydiving is it's essentially formulaic. And, like, you do basically the same thing with the same expectation every time. Mm-hmm. Like, when you... And so that in some ways makes it easier both to train people and to design the kit. Like every time you skydive, your expectation is that you are going to pull. Whereas every time you paraglide, not necessarily the same deal. And no one cares about weight in skydiving particularly. And you can have a really tight fitting harness and there are only a certain number of malfunctions. And the answer to that is pretty much always going to be cut away. Yeah. So that makes it an easier task. And base jumping, like it's, it struck me that the dangerous bit was getting yourself to the exit. Like once you'd actually jumped, you were kind of following a formula and you either followed it right or you didn't. <laughs> and that was a failure <laughs> of preparation, generally speaking, if you didn't. And forgive my ignorance because, like I said, I've, I've never done it, but just sort of hanging out, that was what kind of struck me. Yeah, it's, I think uh, it's not, that's quite a, quite a pretty bang on appraisal. You know, you're, it's, the things that go wrong in um, in base jumping are things that go wrong. The rest of it, like it, everything's formulaic. I'm going to jump. And my body position is going to be good. I'm going to pitch. My parachute's going to appear. I'm going to fly away here. That's how it's going to be. You know, there's not. There's no. Oh, I'm going to go to pitch and I'm going to do this and I'm going to. You know, it's always going to end with me pitching. That's it's how it's going to be. When I like when you said when you take off in a paraglider, your aim is to go fly on your paraglider. It's not I'm going to throw my reserve at the end of this. So that implants a reluctance, maybe as a. So I I would say maybe there's not a um. And mate, listen, I have absolutely no right to to say this and just putting out an opinion. Um, but maybe it's that we've created that we've created in paragliding not a what's the word like an unfamiliarity of going for it, but a reluctance of going for your handle. We've actually created a reluctance because it's sort of it's sort of um it's in you that it's the last resort. I fuck, I'm down to my reserve. As where 
in base jumping and stuff, everything happens when you're already at your last resort. You throw that, you're already there. So maybe we deal with those things better because we're always at our last resort. I think so. And I think one of the really interesting bits there is, have you, um, have you read a book called Thinking Fast and Slow? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, so for those who've not read it, awesome book, hard going, Great book. but awesome book. Um, and in there, they talk about humans' reluctance for small losses. So, like, even if we stand to gain something big, we've got a natural reluctance to lose something. Even if, So, we're, like, guaranteed to lose a small thing, but we might gain something big. We're really reluctant to do it. So, when, like, you have a malfunction in skydiving, you don't lose anything by cutting away because your wings are already fucked. Like, you, you know, that's what you do. Whereas, like... When in paragliding, there's always the potential for loss with throwing a reserve. You know, you've you've potentially lost the rest of your flight. You're going to end up in a tree. You know, you're going to have to get someone to get you down. It's going to cost you a fortune. You have to get your paraglider serviced. You're going to have to repack the reserve. Might be the end of your holiday. You know, there's it's like guaranteed loss. And you might just be able to save it. You might just be able to get your wing back and avoid that loss. And so I think we tend to loss avoidance, even though in reality, we know that if you chuck that reserve, what you might be avoiding is paralysis or death. Mm-hmm. But because this, it's not as certain as in skydiving, I think we subconsciously gravitate towards avoiding loss. And that's what makes us fight, do fight, you, fight, fight, fight. Do you the think the, the, the culture maybe comes into it as well in that, it's sort of seen as inevitable that you're going to throw, that you're going to have a cutaway in skydiving. I've never had a cutaway, um, but I'm 600 and something jumps. I've never had a cutaway in skydiving. I know a guy who within 40 jumps had two. So it's, but it's one of those things. It's kind of inevitable that at some point you're going to have a a malfunction, have a cutaway and they're sort of celebrated and you go and you give your, the the packer who repacked your reserve a bottle of whiskey or some money. And there's a big, there's sort of a thing around it. You know, it's sort of, it's not inevitable in paragliding that you're going to throw your reserve. It's sort of seen as the disaster. It's sort of seen as if I've got to throw my reserve, I'm already in shit. That is it. It's the end. Oh my God. And it's seen as this massive deal when in actuality, I think what you're saying is, is it's probably going to have been the non-event that would have saved your life. It's now a massive deal because you didn't. Totally. But I, I, I don't consider myself any less vulnerable to those same kind of thought patterns that we all land up in. But I think you're right. And I think there's, there's a cultural element to change there. And I think again, at the root of it, it comes down to, to, to SIV again, it comes down to, I would love it if paragliding became a culture in which we like, we celebrated instability and collapses and turbulence you know obviously you don't want to celebrate a collapse in the you know in the wild because that's a sign of a lack of active piloting but um but i i would love it if we didn't operate under an assumption of passive safety you know i fly an nb glider it's going to look after me good (laughs) but when it but then but go and do an siv and learn to learn to look after yourself 
like with the yeah. tool that's been given to you. And you I don't think want the your first SIV. You don't want your first SIV to be when you're trying to save your own life, having never done an SIV. You don't want it to be over your local flying ground. You know, that's the first time you're in a spiral or something. And I'm, I push the SIV thing very much like yourself. Um, you just don't want that to happen for the first time because I think people assume that A B gliders are, are safe. And I think if you were to go and do an SIV and do a rapid exit or watch a rapid exit on these low end gliders and see just how dynamic these things can be, people would be like, Oh shit, I need to be I need to do one of them. I need to do an SIV. Yeah, and but and, and I would frame it really positively though that like every SIV I've done, I've enjoyed paragliding more after I've done it. Yeah. I think I've done six. Like every time I come out, I'm like, yeah, this is great. I can do this now. I've got this much more control. I've got this much more fear, feel for my glider. Um, it's it's class. And so, yeah, you want people to understand the power and energy of their wing, but I just also want people to enjoy the sport more and relax and you know feel like they're they're in command of. Of what they do and yeah so i, I was really i am um, talk, talking to marlin before when i did after i did my last sov and i was speaking to marlin and i was like marlin i would say and like tell me if i'm wrong i would say that um siv doesn't make you a safer pilot it makes you understand what your wing is doing so i'm no safer because the air is the air it's going to do to me what it's going to do to me no matter what pilot i am if i'm going to get a collapse i'm going to get a collapse i you're not teaching me stuff that's going to prevent that if it's going to happen it's going to happen what it's teaching me to do is it's giving me the familiarity of what happens when the shit goes wrong and when that shit goes wrong it's giving me that thing so that makes me understand my wing better which is what everyone could benefit from that and i'm not that's not i know i know i sound like i'm a, i'm preaching to people like go and do this you should do this i like this and i know people have done siv and it has scared them and they haven't enjoyed it i get that and i can't you know it's not for me to say go and do this go and do that i'm a base jumper and i did it because i'm just going to sound like a dick but i do honestly believe that if you take into account that it's not designed to make you safer it's designed to make you understand what's happening and what's going wrong and the more we can understand about what our wing is doing at any point of flying that will in turn make us safer absolutely and i think like i would say i would say and preach to say go and do an siv but i'd say say go and do a good one like and by that i mean one that that takes account of you as an individual and and what your needs are and all my SIVs have, have been brilliant you know I've, I've done ones with jockey i've done ones with flyo like all great and but it needs to take account of your individual needs and where you are as a pilot. It needs to bring you on just enough and done right. I think it's, it's again, it's conditioning against fear injury because it, as you say, it helps you understand what your wings doing. It stops you feeling like you've been in a situation where you are out of control and you don't know what's going on, which I think is one of the ways in which people get fear injured. So mm -hmm. I think, I just think it's just an incredibly worthwhile thing to do. Like, yeah, I couldn't say enough. I completely, I completely agree with you, mate. I can't. That's one thing we'll always agree on there for sure. Um, so what's the uh, what's the plan for you next, mate? Have you got any other big studies that you want to look at? Anything in the pipeline? Are you looking to progress the one that you've finished, for want of a better way of putting things? Um, at, what what's the next step? I think there's there's just so much to be done. It's hard to know. So like, I, I feel like I've, I've advanced a few little 
causes. So like um, Jockey and I um, developed a, like a first aid and trauma course um, and that was good and I'm in the process of handing that on to a, another doctor and paraglider pilot um, to do the doctoring side along with Jock. So like that's one thing that we're trying to advance and like we've done this reserve stuff which is great and then there's this big glaring thing that is back protection like we always break t12 to l2 so like that's got to be something we can fix if we're always breaking the same bones like you've yeah. got to be able to make that better so that's one of them then there's the kind of psychological side and again like this you know i'm i am genuinely interested if i think about like how i can make paragliding safer and more enjoyable you know the sport i love then i'm very interested in again this fear injury side how we work around teaching and culture to promote safety and also to promote enjoyment like to get rid of accident shaming you know all those kind of things there's loads to do there um and then there's some really interesting stuff that um i i'm gonna hopefully get more involved in which is um a researcher called hannah williams who looks at thermaling in raptors and how raptors thermal and interact with each other in the thermals and um, hopefully going to be doing a little bit of work with her over the coming months as well. So there's loads of stuff. I'm super interested in that one, obviously. Being a falconer myself, I'm like super interested in that one. So yeah, I'll definitely be staying nice and close in contact with that so that you can let me know what's going on there, definitely. Absolutely, man. Well, uh, you know, when we've, when we've done it, I'll, um, I'll let you know you can get on the show because it's, um, it's, I can't say too much about it, unfortunately, but it's cool. Yeah. Like, that's going to be really fun. It sounds uber cool. Mate, listen, um, we're like an hour and 45 in. I am going to let you shoot off. Um, I just, you're, you're a pleasure to talk to. I love your energy, your enthusiasm, how you're, you're so here, there, and you, you seem like you have like this first for, I want to know the answer to that. And I want to know the answer to, and like that really excites me. That's why I do these podcasts because I think that when someone reads Dr. Matt Wilkes and they read the stuff that you've written, you can come across like a, uh, a doctor you know and then when you talk to you and they actually see who you are and how excited and infused you are that's the best bit you as a person is the best bit of all of the research you've done you know so i uh, and also so, so kind of you Wes. but also you put up with me that's, that's amazing you put up with me asking stupid questions and making silly remarks so that makes you even more even more appreciative no, not at all, man. I've really enjoyed it, and like I say, there's loads more. Because, but as I think the one, the one bit I do love is to keep learning, and I think there's so much you can get from talking to people. And there's so many people you can meet through paragliding. That's amazing. Like all the different folk that I've met and all the different things that they do. So I could have kept asking you questions about MMA for the whole time, and I'd have been happy. Would have been class. <laughs> Mate, listen, you, we we'll get you back on there's no you you don't have to have anything specific to talk about to come on here mate we'll we'll get you back on and you and i will just sit and we'll talk because like like i said your energy and i just enjoy talking to you so yeah we'll definitely do it again but for for this one mate i'm like i'm over the moon we got it in the in the bag eventually um thank you so much for coming on mate i hope that everyone who's listening will give you a follow because you want to give a shout out to where people can follow the, the stuff that you've done and where they can watch etc sure so the the free flight physiology uh project is the name of what i do um so it's freeflightphysiology.org uh we're on facebook um and occasionally on twitter and occasionally on instagram a lot of my stuff gets published in cross country um thanks huge thanks to those guys have been enormously supportive throughout 
um and you can also specifically the reserve stuff freely available videos on youtube um and they're all run through andre bandara um who again amazing guiding amazing things in uh paragliding so if you go on his website you can find those videos as well so kind of scattered incoherently all over the internet and also just look up your social media i guess because you're going to post links to everything that you're putting out so follow it on there yeah, I'm a bit rubbish at social media at the moment, but I'll try and get back on it. <laughs> well, mate, listen, as I said, thank you very much, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on, and we will have you on again soon. I'm looking for- I'm already looking forward to having you on again. <laughs> Look forward to it, dude. Thanks so much. Take care of yourself. Cheers, mate.